This is the Human Action Podcast with your hosts, Jeff Deist and Dr. Bob Murphy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. We're joined today to discuss the midterm, the punishing midterm, which just took place this week by our old friend, Dan McCarthy. I'm sure many of you in Mises Institute and Ron Paul circles are very familiar with Dan and his work. He's actually edited and created an introduction to a new book, an old book, The Conservative Affirmation by Wilmore Kendall, which David Gordon has already reviewed for our site and which I have uh, promised, Dan, that I'm going to read over the Christmas holidays. But nonetheless, he's also, of course, the editor of Modern Age, which is published by ISI, which is just an excellent publication if you're interested in uh, subscribing to that. So, Dan, uh, here, here's my first takeaway, and I'm going to be the typical uh, obnoxious, Fed-obsessed person here, is that this election shows that there's basically zero political will in this country to deal with any of what I would consider the structural issues of things like war and empire and debt and the dollar and entitlements. Uh, you know, that's just off the table. We're talking about trans or abortion or whatever we're talking about. Yeah, I tend to, uh, I think you're partly right there. So, you know, the Republicans went into this election looking at the inflation numbers and thinking, okay, this will just automatically give us a red wave. This will automatically give us control of both branches of Congress. And, uh, you know, they were happy to talk about inflation, but what are they actually going to do about inflation? What kind of program do they have? What understanding do they have that connects how awful inflation is with the things that government has been doing recently? and what they're going to do differently that would stop more inflation from happening. Uh, I think the Republicans utterly failed to make that case. And as a result, uh, voters were content to go with the status quo. And that's what I think is kind of the bottom line of this election, that it's not so much a victory for Democrats who are going to wind up almost certainly losing control of the House. Mm -hmm. There's still some vote counting going on right now, but that looks like it's going to happen. Uh, the Senate is going to remain either 50-50 or 51-49, uh, but it's basically you know, not uh, exactly a blank check for either party. What the public did is basically they, it just punted. It decided not to make any kind of firm uh, choice about direction. And if you look at the state of both the Democrats and the Republicans right now, maybe it's not so surprising that the public hasn't decided one way or another. I mean, a lot of us would like to believe that, you know, things are so bad under Biden that people just automatically go for whatever alternative is out there. But I think uh, the public, you know, maybe with good reason, wants to see something a lot more substantial than the Republicans have presented so far. So can I just push back a little on that, Daniel, or not push back, but ask you for to clarify, because, yeah, as Jeff said, I mean, it's, you know, you hear these analyses and this was the Republicans should have done much better if history is any guide in terms of the, you know, the off year for the, the White House uh, out, of, out of power group and given the state of the economy. And so you're, it sounds like you're saying, oh, it's because it's not enough that the economy's bad, inflation's bad, that the Republicans didn't explain why they would do anything better. But are you saying in previous cycles throughout U.S. history, there was an articulate explanation as opposed to just the public saying, I don't like the way things are right now. Let me give the other guys a chance. Sometimes there has been. So think about uh, the late 1970s, for example. You have the Jimmy Carter era. Things are generally going very badly. You've got inflation and uh, Republicans and conservatives were able to come up with the idea of supply side economics. Uh, the idea of, you know, uh, Jude Wanisky writing, uh, you know, on a napkin, various ideas that would uh, provide in very simple terms the idea that big government was a large part of the problem, if not the, the primary part of the problem. Now, they were not, of course, uh, going out there and talking in detail about monetary policy for the most part. But the Republicans were at that time able to put together at least, you know, a skeleton of an idea that looked plausible okay. 
for an explanation of what was wrong with our economy. And that, you know, worked out very well for them with the election of Ronald Reagan. Um, you know, it, it's not the case that every election is going to work that way. But it seems to me that what we saw in 2020 with the uh, uh, congressional elections for the Senate and the House is very similar to what we saw just now. Basically, in 2020, the Democrats thought, OK, you know, you have uh, COVID, you have the economy crashing as a result of COVID, and you have uh, Donald Trump being a very controversial uh, president with very low approval ratings. Therefore, we're just automatically going to take over. Uh, well, well, they already had control of Congress, but they expected to expand their control. And instead, they lost seats. Uh, this year, you know, Republicans, too, were relying on kind of autopilot to put them in, uh, you know, in power. And uh, that was a, a mistake. I think right now the public is kind of disillusioned with both parties. They are worried about the state of the, the country. But in the absence of any kind of clear, persuasive alternative, they're simply voting for the incumbents. And if you look, I mean, there's like I say, they're still counting votes. But basically, as of the end of election night, no incumbent senator and no incumbent governor had lost. So I think that's um, it's, it's a sad commentary because, you know, most of these guys have uh, a lot of culpability for what's going on. But uh, nonetheless, the public just seems to be uh, in a mood to address the, the nation's uncertainties by sticking with what they know in terms of politics. You know, I, a couple of things come to mind for me. One is it's a bit humiliating that we can't count these elections the same day. I, I think all this early and absentee voting is absolute nonsense. Unless you're infirm or you're overseas with the military or something, it's voting day. If we're going to have this sacred uh a democracy, then you, you should have to show up. And that should be counted the same day. That That's an embarrassment for America. And I also think there's an, an awful lot of uh, subterfuge going on in that. I, I don't know if it's enough to swing a particular election. But let me throw this out to you guys. Are, are we at a point now where we just have to acknowledge that abortion's pretty popular in America? Well, I don't know about that. I mean, you know, the issue's gone back to the states uh, since the Dobbs ruling. Different states have had different approaches. Uh, most of the time when a um, uh, a popular referendum has been put on the uh, the ballot, uh, the pro-choice side, the pro-abortion rights side has wound up winning that. Right. Uh, and that's true whether you're talking about uh, <clears throat> very expansive referenda or whether it's referenda that would be somewhat restrictive uh, that get defeated. Nevertheless, uh, this is something that I think the pro-life movement should have been prepared for. Unfortunately, it wasn't, and it's understandable why it wasn't. There was a lot of focus on Roe for the past, uh, you know, 40 plus years. But, um, you know, you have a, a an important job of persuasion that now has to take place where you actually explain why you believe that life begins when it does. And, uh, you know, you can't just, again, automatically assume that people are going to possess, you know, the knowledge about, you know, either fetal development or the nature of human rights, uh, just as you can't take for granted that they understand inflation and monetary policy. I think education has been a real weakness for the conservative movement as a whole and certainly for Republicans. And, uh, you know, they're paying a price for this now. Well, I, I think I think progressives should be celebrating Dobbs. <laughs> I mean, look what they're going to get. Look at my I, I believe it's Montana, for example. Uh, uh, passed uh, by by uh, half a million votes, something like fifty-two forty-eight, uh, basically uh, voting down a heartbeat bill of sorts. That, that what what occurs when a, a baby is born, well, actually born with a heartbeat. So I, I guess I guess looking back, progressives were just dead wrong about Dobbs. It might be a great victory for them. Yeah, you often yeah. get a, uh, a reaction. Uh, sorry, Bob, but you often get a reaction yeah. to the things that the Supreme Court does. So in a, in a terrible, perverse way, but a way that was, you know, ultimately quite significant, 
Uh, Roe was actually a benefit to conservatives in the sense that it gave them something very clear to be opposed to, to organize against, and to really, you know, work on yeah. getting uh, different kinds of justices and judges appointed to the, the courts. Whereas uh, now, you know, that's been flipped over. Basically, because the Supreme Court doesn't have, it, it's funny because the Supreme Court is generally, uh, you know, it polls very well in terms of how much people like it compared to Congress or compared to, you know, the presidency. And yet, uh, ultimately, it doesn't enjoy the kind of legitimacy, even that those other branches do. And the other branches certainly have their own compromised legitimacy. But as a result, when the Supreme Court hands down a, an edict that uh, voters have no say in, uh, it's very easy for the people who are on the losing side of that edict to basically say, aha, you know, not only are we losing a, a political battle, but we're actually, you know, not even getting a chance to fight unless we organize very intensely and work very hard to change state laws, ultimately, you know, elect, uh, you know, uh, members of Congress and uh, and start changing those judges again. So it, it's perverse, but the Supreme Court can wind up advantage, giving an advantage to the side that doesn't have control on it. I want to ask you, Dan, you just following up on what Jeff said there. Is it so certainly the progressives and I've even seen some people on the right just saying things like, hey, we warned you guys that, you know, abortion was going to be huge. And, you know, whatever you think about it, like you should have seen this coming. It, it, do you agree that that's a, a major factor in terms of why the normal calculus didn't seem to hold up that with the economy, with Biden's approval ratings, you know, being in the tank that they should have gotten, the Democrats should have gotten crushed, and yet they didn't, and, it's, oh, it's because of this, and, you know, oh, maybe there's a lot of turnout among younger people for, you know, uh, Democrats because of abortion. I mean, I, that was the only message. That in January 6th were the only things I heard people harping on in terms of Democratic camp. There was a attorney general at Massachusetts who just kept showing ads of her speaking to some group and saying how she was going to stand up for a woman's right to choose. And I was like, well, what does that mean? You're like going to selectively enforce the law. Like, what does that even mean? If you're the attorney general, but nonetheless, the people applauded and that was her campaign rhetoric. So I, I, my question is, is that actually correct? That that was a major thing. Like if you look at certain races, like, is that the reason that it didn't go a certain way? Or is that more like just what the progressives are saying? Exposed? No, I think that proved to be correct. So I was skeptical mm -hmm. going into the election that abortion would have quite the significance that progressives were attaching to it. And I have to say I was wrong about that. And if you look mm -hmm. at uh, the exit polls and the breakdown of how different demographics voted, what you find is that unmarried women voted for Democrats by something like, you know, 30 points or so, maybe even a little more than that, which is just absolutely overwhelming. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, younger voters also had a very uh, strong bias towards the Democrats. Uh, so these things, you know, uh, they certainly prevented a red wave from occurring. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sure there are, you know, numerous races all across the country uh, that really were changed as a result of this. So abortion wound up being pretty significant. Dobbs wound up being significant and helping progressives more than conservatives. And also, I have to say, and, and this is really dismaying, but uh, this uh, blatant vote buying that Joe Biden engaged in of forgiving student loan debts, uh, I think that paid <laughs> off as well. And so, you know, a lot of young people uh, just a huge number of millennials and Generation Z uh, cast their ballots for Democrats. And again, if it weren't for them, if it were just a, an election of people 30 and older, uh, you would have had probably the red wave. But uh, Joe Biden succeeded, actually, in, in bribing those voters or at least incentivizing them, rewarding them uh, to uh, continue voting Democrat and to do so in huge numbers. And, uh, you know, so his 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 cynical ploy paid off there. I remember reading Clarence Thomas's a biography or autobiography. He talks about when he arrived at the Supreme Court, he still had student loans. <laughs> he was a Supreme Court justice at that point, I guess in his 50s or his 40s. I can't recall. I guess 40s. 
Um, so, Bob, I, I don't think the attorney general of Massachusetts has to pay one iota of attention to what the Supreme Court says. But, you know, I'm a radical guy in that respect. So I want to take this back to Dan McCarthy. Do you has has Tuesday changed your thinking at all about radical federalism or secession? Not exactly. Um, but, you know, I, my criticisms of, you know, sort of a secession, at least, are that it, it's impractical. And in general, uh, small states, small nations wind up getting bullied by large states and large nations. And in the case of the United States, you know, if you subtract, you know, perhaps the state of Idaho from the United States as a whole, uh, Idaho would wind up getting completely run roughshod over by the United States as a whole. And actually what happens is you take out those more conservative voters from the state of Idaho, the rest of the United States would be you know, incrementally worse than it had been before and even more likely to bully a small state like Idaho. Now, that said, um, you know, there are certainly four. I mean, I'm, I'm in favor of very strong federalism, uh, you know, at the state level. I, I believe that, you know, states should have a high degree of, you know, uh, autonomy. I believe people should be engaged, you know, with their states more than with uh, the federal government. And really, you know, the you know, where I, I part ways with some of my libertarian friends, I do think there is a role for the federal government in basically protecting localities from some forms of globalism, and especially, uh, you know, whether it's economic globalism or foreign threats or what have you. Um, but, uh, you know, I do believe in decentralizing power. And obviously, you know, uh, this election and, and so many other elections make a, a great case for that. And um, I would just say that, you know, we have to be aware of how difficult, you know, the, the situation really is that, you know, we have corporate America oftentimes against us as well as the federal government. Uh, we have, you know, a whole array, you know, media, which is uh, especially social media, gets to your children no matter what state they may be living in or what country they may be living in. And of course, uh, the United States federal government, it's not like it, uh, you know, wants to observe the, the banking privacy rules of Switzerland or, you know, allow anyone to have, you know, the degree of financial autonomy that uh, they had even back in the 20th century. So, um, no, but you certainly need uh, decentralization of power. And, um, you know, I think that, and that's I actually think this less this election is more proof of that, because both this election and also 2020, you saw that, you know, the the nation as a whole is not getting behind one party or the other for Congress, for either the, the Senate or the House, um, which means, that, you know, these states that have very different personalities, they should be, you know, free to have the kinds right, of laws but, that they think are appropriate. But, but to their I have context. to disagree in part. In other words, I already think D.C. is bullying Idaho. And when it comes to the same animating impulse on the left that would make secession potentially, and I'll be frank here, a, a hellscape, a, a pragmatic nightmare, that same animating impulse also applies to the kind of states' rights or federalism, the softer version of that that we might um, propose. So w the only way the left will give up an inch of ground anywhere, an inch of influence, power, uh, legal authority, political authority anywhere, is basically if they get punched in the face. So two very interesting things have happened, uh, in part due to COVID, but they were already happening before, which is that the Texas and Florida appear to have potentially turned redder than they were. And a big part of the progressive doctrine of inevitability was that demographic changes are going to swamp Texas and Florida, turn them blue, 
And then the Republicans will never win another national election under the Electoral College, and that'll be that. Now, that doctrine of inevitability, that mindset, that psychology has been challenged uh, in the last couple of years by DeSantis and by, you know, I'm not a fan of Greg Abbott, but whatever. And, and I think that's the punch in the face, along with Trump beating Hillary, along with Brexit. That's the punch in the face that the left needed to actually say, hey, w- hey, gee whiz, maybe we do kind of have to negotiate with these deplorables because there's more of them than we thought and they're living longer than we thought and, and, and whatever it might be. So, I, I, you know, I'm just not sure that with the framework we've got with people viewing the, the, the Supreme Court as the law of the land or just absolutely nonsensical misunderstandings of the constitutional framework. I, I, I'm not sure that what we're proposing uh, in terms of de- radical decentralization is any more radical or utopian than the idea we're going to coexist w- with the left somehow under, or under current conditions. I mean, I, look, I, I understand that all this has to be fleshed out and this is very, very tough stuff. But... Um, you know, being yoked to the left is, is something that they're for because they imagine that they're going to swamp the right eventually. And if we, and if they start to question that, then maybe they will be more amenable to the kind of federalism we would want. Well, I think that's, you know, that's a case my friend uh, Frank Buckley also makes about uh, secessionism. Frank wrote a book on secessionism about a year and a half the, ago. The great Frank Buckley, I will say. Yeah, and he, he said that, uh, you know, even if uh, secession was in, in, you know, impossible, basically, it was nonetheless an idea worth talking about and pressing upon because it would force the other side to negotiate or force progressives to understand we're serious enough about this that you had better, you know, be willing to back off of some of the, you know, sort of impositions that you're putting on us. Um, that said, you know, uh, it seems to me that uh, one of the things that I worry about with the not just secessionism per se, but with the entire constellation of ideas related to that. So the Benedict option is another example of this. I worry that all of this has a basically retreatist uh, you know, attitude towards it. The idea, well, if we can just get back into our bunker, we'll be safe then, and they won't be able to get inside and hurt us where you know, we're fortified. I think that's completely wrong. They're gonna get you no matter where you go. Uh, and again, they'll get you through, you know, your economic relations with corporate America. They'll get you through the mass media. Um, you know, if, if Idaho were a separate country, there would be a color revolution in Idaho. There would be, you know, I mean, think about the uh, history of the United States with respect to the neighbors we have. Right. Do we have a neighbor we haven't invaded? We invaded Mexico. We invaded Canada. Uh, you know, the, the islands off our coast, they all, uh, you know, get to uh, experience the uh, generosity of America's, you know, sort of liberating firepower. Um, you know, this would be uh, the same sort of story. So actually, I think you have to be more aggressive. You have to be capable of beating the left right here at home, right here in the United States, which is difficult. But, um, you know, here, and, and you also you have a lot of people you can draw upon, even in states like California, right? So California is a, it's still a deep blue state. It's a total wreck. People are leaving because it's so bad. But, uh, you know, there are a huge number of disaffected Californians who we should be appealing to and drawing upon and trying to do whatever we can to mobilize. Now, politically, that may be a, a dead end for now, but uh, knowing that they're out there, they have, a, you know, some economic power, they have, you know, certainly the ability to speak out, all of that, uh, you know, these are allies worth calling upon, whereas I think the more we split up, actually, the more vulnerable we, we become. Let me just chime in on those that point, Daniel. Um, and, and again, a lot of this stuff, is sort of just strategic weighing of different possibilities in a judgment call, but if you're getting absolutely trounced, like sometimes even the best military commanders know their strategic retreat 
is the way you save your army from getting destroyed. And to me, it's not like, well, oh, wow, it, it, you know, they got us on the ropes. Well, by gosh, we're going to push it. Like, it's just been like, it's, we're, we're so proud that Matt Walsh goes out and makes a documentary showing that, aha, actually, if you doubt what a woman is, then we can get you three steps into the argument. Am I right? And it, like, they, they've got us so back on the ropes that we're fighting over what a woman versus a man is. I mean, this isn't, this is incredible how much ground to me the the progressive left has taken in academia and the media and what like the, the setting the terms of the debate that, that would have been inconceivable 20 years ago that right now this is what we would we're where the fight now what we're squabbling over and so yeah to me i think you're right idaho that's why i wrote for people who don't know if you go to texascommonsense.com excuse the plug i have a pamphlet on why texas is the, the logical place if, if, if something's going to break away texas makes sense for the reasons you say daniel and i would just say Mexicans pay less money to Washington, D.C. right now than people in Idaho do. Bob, with all the pro- so, trouble facing America, you have your grubby <laughs> plug. Look, look at you. <laughs> That's right. No, that, I mean, there's good strategic sense, yeah. reasons to think of yeah. a place like Texas or Florida, which, you know, for mm-hmm. geostrategic reasons, right? Because they have coasts. Right. Uh, they have, you know, a lot of advantages. They're, they're large. Now, but Texas, though, I mean, you have Austin, right? So, and Austin is not only significant as the center of the state government, uh, a place of a lot of university activity, but also you have uh, influxes of California companies and others, uh, which are often bringing the same sort of employees uh, that you have in California itself. Many of these employees are people who tend to vote a left wing. So when I think about the you know potential for Texas to turn blue, or at least to change you know its its philosophy. Uh, I'm not, well, I'm partly worried about immigration coming from Mexico, but I'm actually also worried about this immigration coming from, uh, you know, economic, uh, you know, refugees from California and elsewhere. I don't think Texas is so, uh, you know, sort of strongly, deeply red that, uh, you know, if Texas were its own country, it wouldn't have many of the same sorts of problems that we have in the United States right now. It had all of them, you know, to one degree or another. And, uh, you know, I just, I, I don't see that as being a solution. You're right that, you know, you can't fight every battle and that there are, good times for strategic retreats, but you also can't ever win a war by always having strategic retreats. You eventually have to advance and actually have to smash the enemy. And if you can't do that, if you're always going to keep trying to get to a smaller and smaller circle of people that you think you can save, uh, eventually, you know, you're you're going to be Winston facing Big Brother. Maybe you can save your own conscience up against the monster, but uh, you're not going to have anyone around you that you can uh, call upon or, or work together with in order but, to beat this. Okay, but but is DC too far gone? In other words, even if we had a hundred Dan McCarthyites installed in the next administration, president, vice president, head of all the cabinets, head of all the executive agencies, you would still have that vast bureaucratic state. You would still have uh, all, all of the structural problems we have. We, you would still have uh, academia, media, corporate America, tech dominated by progressives. So I'm not sure how we ever or, or anyone ever captures the federal apparatus and turns it towards different ends. Yeah, I basically uh, maybe cite two things here. One of them is uh, the late, great uh, Gary North. And uh, Gary North was, you know, quite optimistic that precisely because of the size of the federal bureaucracy and all that it was doing, that it was going to be, uh, you know, bringing about its own destruction and collapse and incompetence. Uh, my old friend Don Devine at the Fund for American Studies, uh, you know, worked for Reagan's Office of Personnel Management. He also, you know, certainly did some advising to folks in the Trump administration. And, uh, you know, he says it's gotten far worse now than it was, you know, back during the Reagan days. 
Uh, but this is, you know, this massive apparatus, uh, you know, as terrible as it is, is also very ineffective and just it can't it can hardly do even the things it wants to do, let alone doing any of the things that, you know, the services that other people want it to provide. So in that sense, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, it is it's it's a terrible thing, but it's also not quite as omnipotent as uh, we sometimes fear that it is. Um, the entropy is a, uh, a force that we can use to our advantage, as well as, you know, being a force that often works against us. And what we need to do, and what I worry that we're not doing, is, you know, strengthening our localities. So even though on the question of, you know, a term like secession or national divorce, I have my quibbles, and I don't like the idea that, you know, there is a, uh, you know, a kind of excessive optimism in the idea of retreat here, um, I certainly do believe that we have to engage in creating institutions locally and within our states and, you know, sort of outside of D.C. that are uh, capable of withstanding a collapse or capable of withstanding, you know, a uh, increase of entropy within our uh, country. There is, a, 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 you know, a, a fellow I talked to from another country told me that the concept his people employ is that of state proofing, that basically you have to state proof your communities locally so that, uh, you know, whatever may happen with the central authority in your country, uh, you're still capable of, you know, having a, a good life and a, a life with your neighbors and, uh, you know, uh, have things work uh, relatively well, uh, even if you have a very hostile power in the nation's capital. So that, while it may not be quite the same thing or, you know, as secession or national divorce, is, uh, I think, very much parallel. I would just say that you also need the aggressive component, right, the politically aggressive component of going out and hitting your enemies where they are uh, and not just a defensive component of retreating away from them. Well, what do you think happens structurally with some of the problems I mentioned at the top of the show? We now appear to be heading into an environment where interest rates are going to rise to where uh, debt service is the single biggest line item in the congressional budget every year, more than Social Security, Medicare, National Defense. So given the political environment, how will we or, or why would we ever grapple with the dollar interest rates, debt entitlements? Well, I think eventually the pain becomes a little too much to ignore. And uh, we'll see that in terms of diminished uh, you know, uh, investment opportunities here in this country. We'll see it in terms of, you know, just basically we, I mean, as, you know, Austrian economists above all know very well, uh, we've had an economy that has been, you know, basically living on methamphetamines or living on uh, steroids for, you know, at least 20 years and probably a lot more than that, where basically we've been relying upon loose money policies from the Fed in order to, you know, su supply a degree of liquidity, which has been able to keep things afloat that otherwise would not have had been able to sustain themselves. So mm -hmm. all of this True. is now, you know, we're starting to feel the pain, uh, although we're also, I think, uh, no closer to getting to, uh, you know, realism in terms of our economic uh, institutions than we were, you know, even a few years ago. So there's going to be a lot more pain in the future. And uh, one of the, you know, sort of paradoxes that a conservative like myself confronts is, on the one hand, you don't want people to uh, experience all this pain, especially if it, you know, radicalizes them politically or whatever. There's a lot of danger in this. You know, when you have something like the Great Depression or when you have uh, something like, uh, you know, Weimar Germany, sometimes people will go to really far extremes in order to try to, uh, you know, uh, meet that. And they go to irrational extremes to try to meet it. But on the other hand, uh, you know, reformist measures can only stave off the inevitable. And sometimes, you know, it feels like not only uh, are we dealing with all of the difficulties of, you know, uh, the money and credit system that have been uh, skewed for a very long time here, but that, uh, you know, much of our economy as a whole kind of feels like a Ponzi scheme that's going to uh, eventually stop uh, being able to add new 
people buying into it. And of course, what we've done is we've tried to you know globalize that Ponzi scheme. Uh, but even there, there are limits to uh, how far it can go. Well, yeah, and just uh, I think there's probably not as much of a chasm between our views, Daniel, as the discussion might have indicated that it's not, I'm not saying, oh, let's put all our chips strategically on secession and then that, forget everything else. That I, th I think they're all complementary. that yes, individual households just stocking up, getting ready on things, you know, homeschooling people, your, your children and so forth. Like that's all added, as you said, um, and I guess Buckley, I haven't read that, but it's alluded to that just whether it's actually executed or just the threat of it, if people know that, oh, some states are going to break away if, if they, if we're too crazy on the progressive front, that might keep them in check, even in the solidly blue states, because they just, you know, they don't want to lose a, a big chunk of their own population, perhaps who would just leave and go to Texas if Texas were to peel off. So there's, there's those elements, but beyond all that is the, you know, the issues Jeff is bringing up. I, I think at some point in the not too distant future, the dollar is going to crash. Washington's going to, that system is going to implode at least for a while and you're going to have de facto secession, like just localities just ignoring the feds. And if they don't have, if the dollar crashes against other currencies, a lot of Washington's power evaporates overnight. And so that, you know, they, officially they might all be in violation of the law, but it'll be sort of like in Colombia where huge areas are just run by the drug Lords and you know, Oh, it's illegal, but what are you going to do? Well, right. I think, uh, you know, whether it's a collapse that then, you know, forces people to, to relocalize their economies and relocalize their politics, or whether it's, you know, simply a sort of uh, uh, accumulation of entropy within the machine such that it stops to be being able to produce even the kinds of results that it you know produces right now, where it is able to pay off some of its clients and able to keep up, you know, at least an aura of mystique. And uh, I think that's, you know, sort of diminishing by the day. So one way or the other, I think people are going to be, you know, compelled to look back to more localized resources. Uh, but in the interim, you know, I think you have to keep up the battle on multiple fronts, including the ones that, you know, you have access to through uh, the federal system and the federal government. Dan, what do you think uh, Tuesday means for foreign policy? Well, it doesn't really uh, change much because uh, there just wasn't uh, a lot of alteration in either the House or the Senate. I think J.D. Vance getting into the Senate is a very good sign. Uh, he's someone who's been very critical of an adventurous foreign policy and, uh, you know, has been willing to take some slings and arrows from people who say, oh, you're not sufficiently pro-Ukraine, you know, therefore you must be a bad person. And uh, Vance is actually saying, no, you know, you have to have, you're eventually going to have a negotiated settlement or a nuclear war, you know, at the end of this you know, horrible situation, this horrible war. And uh, the sooner you have a negotiated settlement, the better that's going to be. So um, I think J.D. Vance is a great, uh, you know, encouraging sign right there. Uh, there are a few others as well. I guess there's still some vote counting going on in Washington state as we record this. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that uh, Joe Kent's, uh, you know, district has been decided yet. Uh, but if he makes it in, uh, you know, he too will be a voice for uh, a relatively more restraint. He's not, you know, he's not Ron Paul. Of course, no one else is Ron Paul. But, uh, you know, Joe Kent would be a move in the right direction with our foreign policy. So incrementally, there are some, you know, signs of hope and some good changes here. And then Ron DeSantis himself. I mean, I've heard him speak about foreign policy. He doesn't do it a lot, of course, as governor of Florida. Uh, but I heard him give some remarks, uh, you know, in early 2021 to a closed door audience where if he had wanted to, he could have pandered to neocons and uh, GOP insiders. And he could have said, you know, uh, that we're going back to, you know, George W. Bush's foreign policy. And the room I was in at the time would have applauded for that, uh, but he didn't do that. In fact, he said that, you know, we need to continue to, you know, not get into foreign wars, 
and he basically sounded almost like uh, Donald Trump. So I'm cautiously optimistic that someone like uh, Ron DeSantis is also going to improve foreign policy. But, but we know our, ne- our neoconservative friends are, are equally comfortable in, in either party and any administration. Well, is it is it true, though? Do you guys agree? I mean, this is it seemed like whatever else he may have done poorly, that Donald Trump did make it OK again for right wingers to not want to police the world and that that wasn't viewed as, you know, being airy fairy, you know, oh, kumbaya, like like the fact that right now the Republicans want to be friends with Russia and it's the Democrats who demonize them like that. You know, it's like Dr. Strangelove and it, and it flipped the roles. And like, I know there's more things involved than just Donald Trump, but it seemed to me like he gave everybody permission to do that. Yeah, but as quickly as it happened, it could also go into reverse is the thing to keep in mind. So, um, you know, even though Donald Trump, you know, basically exiled a lot of neocons, you know, people like uh, Bill Kristol wound up being totally exposed as a leftist that they've always been. Uh, there are a lot of others who are prepared to, you know, adjust, trim their sails and get back in with the next Republican administration. Of course, Trump himself uh, put in people like John Bolton, although quite frankly, I think John Mm -hmm. Bolton did less harm as national security advisor where Donald Trump could just ignore him than he did as a guy appearing on Fox News or in the Wall Street Journal op-ed pages where he actually had a lot of sway over public opinion. Um, So there have been gains uh, in terms of foreign policy, you know, becoming more realistic, more sensible, more restrained on the right, uh, thanks in large part to Donald Trump. Uh, but those gains can be lost. And the other thing I'll say is that a lot of the attacks you're going to see, you already see them right now, but they're going to keep increasing the attacks you see on Donald Trump. Uh, they're going to try to, you know, not only go after Trump himself, but Trump is just the window through which they're going to go after everyone who supported Donald Trump, everyone who wanted to see, you know, the kinds of changes that Trump talked about being made in our party. So it's not just going to be Donald Trump who is uh, treated as the loser from last Tuesday. Uh, you're also going to the claim is going to be made that, you know, non-interventionists and realists are the losers, that immigration restrictionists are the losers, that basically mm-hmm. anyone who is aligned with Trump is the loser. And there are an awful lot of terrible people in the Republican Party and in the conservative movement who are going to want to take advantage of this opportunity. And will try to restore the status quo ante of, you know, the McCain and uh, Romney and uh, George W. Bush years. Yeah. I mean, I think the whole January 6th incident has been an absolute farce. I think the committee was an absolute farce. I don't think the, the majority of Americans care about it one whit. But I will say it provides an opportunity and a platform to effectively chill and criminalize dissent. I think that's the real goal. The goal is if Trump were more popular uh, to potentially invalidate him from running again under the, uh, I guess, the 14th Amendment, the particular clause of the 14th Amendment, but also under various federal laws. I think um, the goal here is to basically say that MAGA was an illegal movement, that that, that, that is uh, beyond the pale in American politics and, and that you can go to jail or at least lose your livelihood. Um, I, I don't think, I, I think it's a perfect example of where the left doesn't screw around. They mean what they say in a way that conservatives don't. They're just better at fighting. That's right. And uh, they're going to be vindictive. So even if Donald Trump, you know, decides next week that he's not going to announce that he's running for president, even if, you know, uh, he decides that he's going to go into retirement on Mount Athos uh, next week and, uh, (laughs) you know, never, never make another public pronouncement, never return to Twitter. Uh, you know, basically all of uh, Trump's uh, critics and opponents and enemies, they'll continue to use him as a symbol and they'll say, aha, 
you know, he's had to retreat in shame because uh, he was leading this illegal movement, uh, this, you know, attempted fascist coup. And, you know, thank God the Republicans have now changed their minds and they're no longer Trumpian. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there will be so much strange new respect, you know, showered upon any Republican who says, you know what, the last five years have been a total disgrace. We need to go back to the good old days of, you know, nice, honorable George H.W. Bush and his son, George W. You know, John McCain needs to be on the, you know, $5 bill or whatever. Uh, you know, that'll happen. So, uh, you know, these battles on the right are going to get more intense rather than less intense, uh, no matter what happens, but basically over the next, uh, you know, 12 months and uh, 24 months as we get towards um, 2024. Uh, I do think, by the way, Trump is going to run again. Uh, you know, he doesn't see anything that he's going to lose personally by doing this. And, uh, and he'll run a, a pretty, you know, tough, uh, you know, uncivil campaign, let's put it that way, as we've seen in the past. So um, I think, you know, Ron DeSantis would be well advised right now. Have a thick skin. Don't let uh, Donald Trump bait you and basically give it time. So you've just been reelected governor. Uh, you know, let's see that you can actually, you know, what you have planned for your second term. Uh, take several months and, you know, rack up those accomplishments uh, because you're in office. You can actually establish a good record of governing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, with Donald Trump, we'll see, you know, in six months time, is he going to be more popular than he is now? Is he going to have better poll numbers against Joe Biden than he has now? If he doesn't, then it's going to be very easy for someone, whether that's DeSantis or somebody else, to ride in at the end of uh, 2013, sorry, 2023, and say, "Hey, I'm going to I'm going to save the Republican Party because clearly the guy who's been your front runner for you know six months uh, is actually you know consistently behind in uh, all the polls." I mean, it's kind of like what we saw in uh, 2015 and 2016. Where when Jeb Bush first announced he was going to, you know, explore running for president in early 2015, he basically scared away Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney would have liked to have run for president again <laughs> after 2012. And he said, oh, but I, I probably can't beat Jeb Bush. I mean, Jeb Bush, he's got the family name and he's got all this, you know, what cachet. So yeah, exactly. No, uh, Jeb Bush preemptively he didn't quite clear the field, but he certainly cleared it of, of Mitt Romney. And, uh, you know, so there was this time when people thought, oh, man, Jeb is it's going to be a Jeb, uh, you know, versus Hillary Clinton, another Bush Clinton race. And of course, you know, Jeb just never got off the ground. Uh, voters can get pretty tired of, you know, seeing uh, any given politician over and over again. Now, Donald Trump has sort of defied that tendency in the past. He's so entertaining and so shocking that people, you know, don't get sick of him the way they do of others. But, um, you know, Donald Trump in 2023 isn't in quite the same position as no. a fresh guy as uh, yeah. Donald Trump in I 2015, mean, 2016. Two things can be true simultaneously. One is Trump had to happen. Two is that Trump is played. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, Trump, again, he is a man who has pulled off the impossible before uh, in his professional true. life as well as in his political life. So uh, I'm always reluctant to say, okay, now we know that Donald Trump, you know, really has reached the end of his uh, political tenure. And you've got to keep in mind, he has an enormous amount of popular support among, you know, uh, uncouth conservatives, right? People who were labeled as deplorables mm -hmm. by Hillary Clinton. And so even though you see this, you know, sort of great uh, closing of ranks among conservative intellectuals against Trump right now and among, you know, all the Republican Party professionals, uh, I think there's still an awful lot of, you know, uh, grassroots support for Donald Trump. And I have to say that seeing some of the, uh, you know, professional class conservatives and, you know, uh, Republican operatives uh, stake out the positions they have, it's actually probably the, the, the one really critical thing I can say about uh, uh, Ron DeSantis right now is that some of the worst people in the world are supporting him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whereas mm -hmm. Donald Trump right now, uh, you know, all of the Fairweather friends and Sunshine Patriots are deserting him. So I kind of like that. I like the fact that, you know, now, uh, you know, it's it's Trump against the world again, as it was in 20, you know, 2015, 2016. 
Uh, we'll see. And, you know, I do fear that, you know, in 2015 and 2016, Trump really could talk a lot about how awful the establishment was, you know, the forever wars going on in the Middle East. He could talk about, you know, the crisis at the border and other things. He didn't have to defend a record, uh, you know, going into 2023 and 2024. Now he's got a record uh, and now he, you know, can't quite separate himself from all of politics the way he could back then. So it is a very different environment and a very different situation for him. But he's done the impossible before. So uh, I'm reluctant to say uh, lightning can't strike twice. And also, too, I think, you know, if, if he were to run next week, yeah, he probably would lose. But the country's going to be in a much different spot two years from now as, as things fester, like we've been talking about. I think we all agree things are just going to get worse. And so it, you know, it, it may be more the stakes are going to be higher. And so a lot of people are going to say, yeah, he was the one guy who can stand up to these monsters that are trying to take my kids and da, 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 and so forth. There's, there's that element. One thing too, Jeff, about the January 6th, what, what the left, they're very clever. What they managed to do is they now have this term election denier. Mm-hmm. And so now going forward, if anybody questions the legitimacy of an election, that means you are for cops being killed. Mm-hmm. And you're you're an insurrectionist, like just the two are now in, inseparably linked. So, they, you know, that gives them carte blanche to do all sorts of stuff with shenanigans. And, you know, people who are worried about the left's opinion of them are going to now tiptoe around even questioning it because, oh, I can't be an election denier. We all know what that means. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I'd add, Bob, is that, of course, uh, that will apply to anyone on the right who criticizes or, or questions an election. Uh, it won't apply to Stacey Abrams. It won't apply to Obviously, all yeah. the election <laughs> deniers, you know, that uh, have uh, been in the Democratic Party for decades. Right. I'm just saving myself time. Just like, you know, racism is fine if it's, you know, mm. from from the left. From the left. Yeah. Well, Dan, let me begin to wrap this up. Just speak briefly about some of the factions and coalitions on the right. You know, you've got the Adrian Vermules at Harvard. You've got the Sobrab Amaris. He just wrote something in The New York Times yesterday called Why the Red Rave Didn't Materialize. You've got the American conservative folks and the Quincy folks who are a little more aligned with us on foreign policy. You've got the Claremont folks who had a basically went and under uh, underwent a ra- pretty radical transformation with Trump. Uh, you 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 still have the National Review types. You still have uh, the uh, the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. You have those types. You still have sort of the faint remnants of a John Boehner uh, House uh, Republican caucus. You've got upstarts. You've got the uh, the Marjorie Taylor Greens. I don't know if Lauren Boebert or whatever is going to ultimately uh, prevail in her election. So you got a lot going on here. Yeah, and you know it kind of makes uh, the right uh, fun and and interesting as well as uh, obviously very stressful for people who like predictability and homogeneity. So uh, you know I think these different intellectual schools on the right. Uh, you mentioned uh, you know sort of Sorab Amari, Adrian Vermeule. Uh, they tend to identify these days as post-liberal. Uh, oftentimes, uh, the label that's been affixed to them by others is integralists. Uh, you know, in, in a sense, they are uh, sort of uh, representing some of the views that uh, the great L. Brent Bozell had back in the early days of National Review. Brent Bozell was uh, William F. Buckley Jr.'s brother-in-law, a uh, brilliant writer, a wonderful soul, uh, very troubled, uh, you know, uh, had bipolar mental disorder, uh, severely alcoholic. But, uh, you know, Brent Bozell was always a, a very outspoken Roman Catholic who was very critical of modernity as a whole. And uh, with, uh, you know, the post-liberals today, they are a little more, uh, they don't have the, you know, sort of um, the personal difficulties that 
that Bozell had to had to bear. And they also have, I think, a more definitive, uh, you know, a program and approach to things. Not so much necessarily in the case of Soab Amari, who's more of a, a you know sort of general big picture guy. Right. But certainly Adrian Vermeule is, you know, he's a professor of administrative law at Harvard University, and he has, you know, particular ideas about using administrative law to further, you know, his uh, ideas, his, his, you know, political ideas, uh, which he sees as being, you know, ideas that are derived from the Catholic tradition. Uh, of course, Vermeule had many of these ideas before he converted to Catholicism as well. He was a great exponent and, you know, uh, supporter of executive power, uh, you know, going back to the George W. Bush years, although he's become very critical since then of the Iraq war. So that's that, uh, you know, sort of uh, constellation on the right. The West Coast Straussians, the people who, um, you know, have a uh, tradition going back to Harry Jaffa, who, of course, uh, was someone who didn't have uh, all that much appreciation for Murray Rothbard or for, no. you know, paleoconservatives or paleolibertarians. Uh, but the West Coast Straussians, um, you know, one thing you can always say, and, and this, in fact, is something that uh, Rothbard actually said about Leo Strauss, who, of course, was the, uh, you know, sort of great uh, teacher and inspiration to Jaffa, is that, uh, you know, the Straussians take seriously the idea of natural right. And uh, they, you know, are enemies of relativism. And Rothbard found it very encouraging that uh, that Strauss was willing to defend the idea of these, you know, theoretical, strict ideas, you know, rational, reasonable ideas of right and wrong. And you see that today with the West Coast Straussians basically looking at what's going on and they say, well, okay, you know, their view of Abraham Lincoln and of, you know, the Declaration of Independence and other things may be different from that of many paleoconservatives. But quite clearly, based on, you know, the sort of natural rights thinking that they uh, see within the Declaration and see Lincoln as uh, championing, these things are not at all what the federal government is doing today. And the federal government, in fact, is very much opposed to uh, the kind of natural rights tradition that uh, the, the, you know, uh, West Coast Straussians value very highly. The other thing, too, is that uh, the West Coast Straussians have always been very perceptive critics of progressivism and of the administrative state, which I mentioned earlier. And uh, so they've always been doing very valuable work there. And I think there's actually now quite a lot of opportunity for crossover between paleoconservatives and, uh, and you know, Austrian libertarians, Rothbardians, and the West Coast Straussians. Not so much on some of these, you know, uh, basic questions of American constitutionalism, perhaps, which are important, but on, you know, the applications in terms of, you know, what's actually happening uh, in the world right now. And also, you know, ultimately in terms of, you know, what it means to have natural rights or, you know, natural right in the singular uh, these are great theoretical questions that I think Rothbard would have enjoyed uh, reopening and, uh, you know, re-engaging with uh, folks like Michael Anton, for example, at uh, the Claremont Institute. And then beyond that, uh, you mentioned, you know, a number of, uh, you know, different varieties of Republican politician. Um, you know, those come and go. Uh, you've got, you know, it was very interesting. Uh, this past Tuesday in the midterms, you had a pretty good showing for a more, uh, you know, constitutionalist Ron Paul style uh, Republicans. So uh, Rand Paul got reelected easily. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike Lee in Utah got reelected easily against a terrible neocon, uh, this uh, McMullen character, who was running as an independent because he knew he couldn't win as a Democrat. Uh, McMullen is, you know, former CIA officer, uh, Bill Crystal, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, idol, basically. Um, and Lee, you know, crushed him very easily, even though there was a lot of hype, you know, during the election saying, oh, Mike Lee might be in danger here. And then uh, Thomas Massey, of course, has been reelected to the uh, U.S. House of Representatives. And you know, he's one of the best of the best. So um, I think there's a pretty strong still uh, liberty faction in the GOP as well. You still see some of these Ron Paul Republicans. And uh, there's still a lot of good organization uh, infrastructure in place that could revive that uh, in the future, especially if things like inflation become uh, you know, a persistent issue. 
And the Republicans right now are so, you know, sort of inept when it comes to talking about economic issues, some of these foundational questions like inflation, like interest rates, that I think they really need to draw upon people like Ron Paul and Rand Paul if they want to have, you know, articulate positions on these once again. And a lot of the, the sort of uh, so-called new right, some of the Claremont folks and some of the, you know, sort of uh, post-liberal folks, they just haven't thought a lot about economics per se. Mm -hmm. uh, they have, you know, sort right. of moral views or sociological views of, about economics. But that's different from knowing economics itself and having sort of well-defined uh, positions on things like uh, interest rates or the nature of the Federal Reserve System. Bob, we'll give you the last word. Well, I mean, I, I think what this shows is just having a central plan for how we're going to restore liberty in our country doesn't often work, that there's there's too many variables going on in it. And it does just show the the uh, importance of keeping a, a wide field of of options going and different people working in their areas of expertise. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for joining us. I want to thank Daniel McCarthy for his time. Just tell us real quick, where can people find your Wilmore Kendall book, The Conservative Affirmation? Okay, well, it is published by Regnery. And ah, okay. uh, you can find it on the Regnery website. You can also find it at Amazon.com. And when you go to Amazon.com, just make sure you're getting... Uh, the 2022 edition, it's a paperback uh, and not one of the older editions that are still available there. And right, the new version is what will make the millions and millions of dollars roll into Daniel McCarthy's coffers, right? <laughs> yeah, not hardly, but, uh, you know, it's, it does have my work in there. And so, uh, you know, I get a little bit of uh, reflected glory from appearing uh, alongside Wilmore Kendall. All right. Well, thanks so much, everybody. Have a great weekend. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. And in the meantime, you can find more content like this at Mises.org.